I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guests are Tulane business professor Jay Cameron Verhall and Jacob Landry, founder of Urban South Brewery. Although, unfortunately, this conversation isn't taking place over beers, we will be talking about beer. Specifically, Verhall and Landry will talk about the business of beer and what it takes to build an authentic and scalable product. I'll also ask about how Urban South and other brewers are battling inflation and other challenges. Professor Cameron Verhall and Jacob Landry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rich. Happy to be here. Awesome. Look, to start, could you both just share a brief bio and describe your relationship to the beer business? Sure. Um, so I'm I'm a Cajun from Southwest Louisiana. <laughs> I grew up between Lake Charles and Lafayette, and I've uh, been in New Orleans about 13 years. And after a decade working in public education as a school teacher, and then as an administrator at the Department of Education in Jefferson Parish Public Schools. I uh, was just ready. I'd always dreamed about opening my own business and uh, beer was what I just kept being called to. And so I did an MBA at Tulane and uh, it's been about a year doing a lot of deep due diligence and talking to people in the industry and evaluating the industry here in New Orleans. And I thought it was a good time and a good place to open a brewery. And so with my wife's blessing, we opened Urban South in 2016 and it's been a, a really great ride since then. How old were you when you went back to school? I think I was 28 when uh, I did when I started the MBA program, and it was the executive MBA, so it was a, kind of the best of both worlds. I got to still work full time, but but do uh, Thursday. I think it was Friday Saturdays for about 18 months. Gotcha, gotcha, Professor Verhall. What's your what's your quick bio? Uh, well, I'm from the West. I'm from Utah. That's not really a state that you all automatically associate uh, with beer, but <laughs> I'm a, a fan of beer. Uh, did my PhD at the University of Utah, and um, you know, just kind of fell into collecting data on on the beer industry, did my dissertation on it. Uh, I study uh, a lot of industries looking at organizational authenticity and product positioning in sort of cultural production markets. And so uh, the beer industry is one of the ones I've, I've worked uh, the closest with, mainly um, sort of industry evolution and stuff like that. So I'm less well-versed on sort of the current state of the beer industry as opposed to sort of the historical development of the industry over time. Understood. Understood. Uh, Jacob, can you do a little bragging? Um, what's What's been the growth trajectory of your brewery and what are your top sellers? Yeah. So I like to say it's been extremely rapid, but manageable growth. Um, so today we are the second largest brewery in, in New Orleans. I mean, I'm sorry, in Louisiana by volume. Um, we're the largest in New Orleans. Um, well, I'm going to put a little caveat because there was a merger within the last few weeks that might have uh, might have changed some of those stats. But in terms of Louisiana beer brand, we're the we're the number two behind Abita. Um, we so that that puts us at about there's about nine thousand, probably ninety five hundred today uh, breweries in the country. And that puts us in the top like one hundred and fifty. Um, so it's a it's a good place to be. It's to a point where we finally have economies of scale to really do some some cool projects and um, and and actually make some money in the industry, which is not super easy to do, especially today. Um, but all of that's happened over the last six and a half years. And a big part of that has been uh, first first was was Holy Roller. It was the first kind of 
uh, new modern style IPA to hit this market with really fruity and citrusy hops. Um, and then even more successful has been Paradise Park. So it's a, uh, we call it our budget lager. It's our beer flavored beer. Uh, really want it to be the the go-to beer for anyone and everyone who uh, who wants something easy drinking. And so that's been huge. That's about uh, close to 55% of our volume today. Um, and then we've extended that brand family to include a 100 calorie version, to include some hard seltzers, to include a locale IPA. Um, so we're really kind of doubling down on that that sub brand within the urban South family. What percentage does who beer represent? Who <laughs> that's uh, it, it's formidable, but it's not, uh, not in the top four. I think it falls in probably right around number five for us. Well, I was going to say, based on the conversation we're about to have, that's one of those brands that probably can't go too far out of certain zip codes. Yeah. And it's pretty seasonal as you can imagine. <laughs> um, Professor Verhal, you're an expert on how organizations in craft-based industries, such as organic foods, craft beer, manage growth. Can you talk about why the brand, you know, the image, the style, the personality, why is that important to the craft beer world? Uh, well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is um, the craft beer industry has always been sort of a, a what I would call a cultural production market. And those are normally characterized by industries where, you know, it it can be difficult to actually objectively determine what quality is, right? I mean, you know, there's um, sort of the famous case in the wine industry of the Judgment of Paris, where experts uh, it basically put um, California wines on the map over over French ones, right? And beer is the same thing. Like, you know, it changes temperature a little bit. Uh, it can be, you know, most people can tell a bad beer from a, a good beer. But, you know, getting getting into those sort of granularities are hard. So because of that, how you project yourself, what your image is, what your brand is, and how you connect with consumers is, is I think, incredibly important. So, um, you know, another reason is, I think, because the, the craft beer industry started as sort of an what I call an oppositional market, an oppositional industry where its identity, collective identity, was predicated on this opposition to sort of mass-produced beer. And so it became important to sort of differentiate yourself from the mass producers so that you didn't have to compete directly with them. Um, so I, I think those are probably some of the, the main reasons why sort of identity and authenticity and these types of things resonate so well um, in these types of markets. When did that opposition begin? So this is just my personal opinion, but I think that there's sort of been, you know, sort of three stages of the craft beer industry. You have sort of the the mid 80s and the and the 90s when you basically just had people uh, starting craft breweries that that were just beer nerds, right? And they brewed beer in their basement and they turned their hobby into their lifestyle. And that was really sort of the, the oppositional phase. It was critical to sort of position yourself and be viewed as sort of not only not one of the main mainstream producers, but sort of anti uh, anti mass production completely. So that really infused the identity. The problem is it kind of constrained you a little bit, right? So I would right. say the next phase was sort of between 2000 to 2012, 2013, where you had this incredible growth in the industry, and it um, the industry was sort of not necessarily struggling because it was a it was a period of tremendous growth, but they were sort of trying to uh, reconcile these sort of conflicting uh, notions of how do we grow, but how do we stay true to what our, what our identity is? So, you know, additional identity codes started to emerge above and beyond just uh, being small scale and anti-mass production. And a lot of that sort of is the creativity that you, that you see in the craft beer industry, the playfulness, not only with the beer styles, but with the beer names and those types of things. And then I would say, uh, and, and you started to have people come in who weren't necessarily sort of what I would call, you know, beer nerds or lifelong beer brewers, right? You had people that came in with a, the, you know, that had a, wanted to create a, a viable business model out of, out of these types of things. 
And then sort of the third stage, I would say, I mean, I don't know the exact year, but maybe 2013, something like that to the present. I mean, you just have the explosion of this industry and um, you have this incredible growth of these breweries and, and they really started to, this industry has really started to enter the mainstream market. So the consumer has changed over the course of this time. These consumers have different sort of values and what they value from, from a craft brewery, what, what they value for authenticity. Um, and so the, that, that's sort of what I, you know, it kind of neatly packaged into the three sort of stages of this industry. And, and, you know, it, it hasn't been the same during those three stages, you know, what, what it is to be a, a genuine craft brewer from an identity perspective has changed over time, not only because, because the, uh, the actual businesses have changed, but the consumers have changed as well. Jacob Landry, how many brewers like you are there in just say New Orleans right now? So New Orleans, there's about 13 or 14. Um, and that's up from, you know, when we opened, we were maybe the second or third, you know, you had Nola Brewery and then right around when we opened second line brewing also opened, um, right around the same time. So, uh, there's been some growth, but when you think about nationally during that same time period, there was about 2,500 nationally when we opened and there's about 9,500 today. So, um, the growth in Louisiana is definitely not kept pace, uh, with the growth nationally. It's funny because it, when I, you know, you drive down Chapatulas and it feels like it's just nothing but breweries, but compared yeah. to what's happening in other places, I'm guessing Colorado and Carolinas and things like this, I just picture it nothing but breweries, you know, Oregon. Yeah, you've got like Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Vermont. They're all the, some of the top states in breweries per capita. And uh, Louisiana and Mississippi are at the very bottom in breweries per capita. That's amazing. I, I'm su surprised to hear that considering how much we uh, enjoy drinking beer. Um, so I'll start with you, Jacob, but then, you know, feel free to weigh in Cameron, but so what does it mean to, for a brewer like you to, to develop that authentic brand? Yeah. I mean, it, part of it, I think was, um, just as the, well, industry wide kind of, as you got into it, even in the early days in the, you know, the mid eighties, there weren't even companies making brewing equipment this small. And so all of the breweries that opened during that time period were just using repurposed dairy equipment mm. um, and just whatever they could find, a lot of homemade equipment. Um, so that certainly evolved, but still that that core, um, when we opened, you know, there wasn't, financing was not easy. Um, you really had to bootstrap, uh, unless you were independently wealthy, uh, you really had to bootstrap uh, what you were doing. And so with that, I think just inevitably led to a very organic uh, creation of a brand and organic growth. And so every money, every, you know, dollar we made was put directly back into the brewery over those, uh, those six years. Um, and so I think that kind of forces you into this, this super organic and authentic, uh, you know, realm. Uh, when you walk into our space compared to what you might build as a brand new brewery today, like our space is really rough. Um, it's, you know, the floors are unfinished, the, <laughs> Uh, there's not insulation on the ceiling, you know, the rafters are exposed and that was out of necessity. Um, but I think it actually has, has contributed a tremendous amount to just how authentic our space feels, um, whenever people come in and interact with the brand at that level. Um, and, and you have new breweries today opening, you know, at a pretty rapid rate. And now when financing is more readily available and you do have people with money getting into the industry, that's not a given. You have a lot of you know, brand new builds that look a lot different than our space. And I think, you know, even though our space might seem a little dated and kind of generation two of, of the craft beer world, 
um, there's a lot of authenticity that comes with that. Yeah, it almost seems like you don't necessarily want to see too polished of a space because I feel like, you know, then then the the product might have that same polish, which is not necessarily what you want. Uh, Cameron, is it not just as simple as make a delicious beer and then people will buy it? I mean, is, there's got to be more to it, right? Yeah, and I think it goes back to what I said sort of in the beginning, right? It's, it, I mean, everyone has different tastes and preferences. And um, the beer industry is one where there are just myriad types and styles of beer. Um, you know, before, um, you know, a couple decades ago, it was unthinkable to be introducing sort of uh, wild fermented uh, beers and these types of sour beers and those types of things. There just wasn't a palate for it um, right. uh, at, at any scale, and and it, and it's evolving and emerging, right? So I think that's I think that's definitely part of it um, that that sort of plays into this. But um, you know, like I said, it, what authenticity is is different is different for people. Earlier in this industry, there was really clear sort of codes uh, codes and ideas and schemas of what it was to be authentic, right? So were you dedicated to the craft? Um, were you in it for the love of it as opposed to sort of um, extrinsic motivation, like making money out of it? Um, uh, were you countercultural? Were you against sort of mass-produced breweries? Th those were really clear ideas, and it's changed a little bit. And I, I think uh, what Jacob is saying about his space, I think it, it really resonates for me as sort of an authenticity researcher, right? Because I think what's happening in the craft beer industry is it's turning more to... Um, there's a famous social psychologist called Erwin Goffman, and he he wrote a book about uh, it's called The Presentation of the Every Everyday Self. And you're authentic to the extent that you are what you claim to be. And he used the analogy of a, a theater stage. Right. So if your front stage matches your backstage, then then you're perceived as authentic. And I think the space at Urban South kind of reflects that. Right. They're basically saying pulling back the curtain and saying this is who we are. This is the space. It's not overly um it's not overly dramatized it's not it, you know it's not fancy but it, this is who we are and i think that's why urban south has had such success even though they've scaled uh really quite rapidly even for an industry that that, that has started to scale rapidly that they, they're they're able to and other breweries crap breweries too are able to sort of um convincingly uh, uh show consumers who they really are the big obvious tension that you mentioned earlier is if this whole industry was born in opposition to miller light how does Urban South and all of the others like it? How do they scale up without losing their core? Well, I'll say I'll, I'll start. I think I'm interested to hear what Cameron says about it. But um, I, I'd say first, I think you got to set the stage of like Anheuser-Busch, InBev produces about 100 million barrels of beer a year. <laughs> we measure beer, a beer barrel is 31 gallons. And, you know, by contrast, even Abita, that's a top 25 craft brewer, makes 150,000 barrels of beer a year. So it's 100 we, million versus 150,000. Right. And so, and then, you know, even when you look at a Sam Adams, which, you know, now with all their extensions to truly and all of that, they're still in that like sub 6 million barrel of beer a year range. And so here we are at 20,000 uh, barrels of beer a year. Um, we're, you know, I, ironically, there's some, I think craft, you know, uber craft beer consumers who might consider us big and <laughs> too big and, and inauthentic in that sense. But in the grand scheme of things, like we are tiny, like despite how much paradise park you see on the parade routes for Mardi Gras, like we are tiny. We still don't hold a candle to the amount of Michelob ultra sold in Louisiana. So I think that, uh, you know, as, as the industry has grown, it's definitely become very relative in some circles. We're considered a big craft brewer uh, and maybe too big for some people, but, 
in the grand scheme of things, we're still pretty tiny. Well, one follow up to that, though. So you say, you know, you mentioned Abita or you versus uh, InBev. If you add up the entire industry, all of you guys across the country, how many barrels is it versus InBev? I want to say, I think it's maybe like 20 million. Okay. Um, I, you know, we haven't, you know, compared to InBev, compared to beer as a, as a whole, I think craft beer volume wise is still in like the, the 10 to 12 percent okay. uh, range in terms of total craft beer sold in the U.S. compared, you know, within the beer industry. OK, understood. Uh, what are your thoughts, Cameron, on that? that how to scale by while keeping your soul? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, um, you know, one, one thing you can't do. I've done some research on this is you can't you can't claim authenticity, right? Like you can't once you claim it, you're, once you claim it yourself, we're the most authentic beer, we're the most authentic <laughs> restaurant. It actually kind of backfires on you because people yeah. will um, they become skeptical. Right. Uh, um, I, I think also a lot of it is just understanding who your customers are because the, the customers have changed over time. I mean, the, a, a perfect example is I, I did a, a research project and analysis on, um, American loggers, like light loggers, pilsners in, in the craft beer industry. And this was in the early two thousands. And there was actually sort of a stigma attached to producing these types of beers, right? Because they were associated with, um, because they were associated with mass-produced beer with Bud and Coors, and the more you be, more a brewery became known for uh, an American lager, uh, the lower their ratings, even controlling for underlying quality, um, uh, the lower the ratings for the other beers, right? And and that sort of changed over time. I think Jacob can speak to this better than me, but I've always been told it's actually almost harder to produce um, a really really good light lager because you can't hide any imperfections in the brewing process um, behind a lot of the extra ingredients that are added into it. So you really have to, you really have to do it well. And it was, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that, that, that um, those types of beers, I think were doing them right. What was sometimes, you know, harder to do, but, um, but they were stigmatized and, you know, and now that the, again, the consumer base is changing craft beer, even though it pales in comparison to the larger industry is, is, um, you know, reaching mainstream markets, you walk through a grocery store and you see way more craft beer. I remember when I was uh, doing my PhD, thinking about the craft beer industry for my dissertation, you walk into a gas station and it would be basically like Blue Moon, Shock Top, and maybe depending on where you were, like New Belgium or something like that, right? And now you walk in and it's, you know, it, it not necessarily by volume, but but you, you in a lot of places you see like really equal sort of shelf space. So um, so I think just understanding your customer, and again just being true to them and and not lying to them and 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 pretending like you're something that you're not. For either of y'all, what is the vision for where this is going over the next decade? I mean, are there expectations that craft is going to keep taking market share, or is is the current twelve percent just where it should be, and that's and that's where everyone wants it to be? What 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 are people thinking? There was a lot of optimism a couple of years ago within the industry. So we have the Brewers Association is our trade national trade group that tracks all this data, and you can definitely feel that optimism fading. Um, there was this idea that uh, by twenty, I think it was. 2020. So like back when I first got into the industry, there was this hope that by 2020, we we capture 20% of the the beer volume. And that seems to have really plateaued. And um, I don't know that there are any clear answers. There certainly is a lot more competition today with different, these new beverage categories that have been created with hard seltzers and cocktails in a can and, and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, I, I think that right now within the industry, from my perspective, there's some assumption that we're we're all kind of fighting for a, 
a relatively small piece and that pie is not going to, you know, not going to grow that much. Do you think there's a sense that there will be more or less breweries in New Orleans in 10 years? I, I think there'll certainly be more, but what you're seeing with, uh, so when we look at that 2,500 to 9,500 over the last, you know, seven years, um, nearly all of that growth has been in the small neighborhood brewery model. So uh, not through distribution. So in New Orleans, you've got like a courtyard or a parlow or Miel. Um, and that model where you're really just focused on your neighborhood, you're focused on the on-premise experience, people coming in and drinking beer. So from that perspective, I think there will be more um, from the perspective of more manufacturing breweries. I'd say no. I mean, I think it you'd, you'd be, you know, I hate to say it, but I think you'd be foolish to to try to go the route we went today under the current market conditions and in, in this market. Interesting. Well, speaking of which, I had a question. I'm going to bump it up in the order here. Uh, can you talk about what's happening right now? I just saw a story this weekend about how inflation's hitting breweries, you know, the, co- the costs of uh, whether it's the malt or the can and every other thing you need. Uh, talk about how inflation is is affecting the industry. It's crushing us at every level. Um, it, it, not only inflation, but also just um, weather patterns and, and war. And so grain, you know, grain is a little complicated because I think it has a little more to do uh, with just the drought in the Midwest and the war in Ukraine. But grain prices are up thirty to forty percent depending on the grain. Um, and they had another difficult year in in terms of harvest so it doesn't look like it's changing for 2023 um our aluminum prices have have been up and down all year the price of our can is tied to the aluminum market and so we get updates every month and uh so that got as high as 30 percent higher than we were paying um a year ago it's leveled out right, right now at about 10 percent higher than we were paying a year ago but a lot of the cans that we ordered this year were all about 20 30 percent more expensive Cardboard is up about 20%. Uh, transportation's up anywhere from 20 to 50%. You know, a lot of fuel costs driving that. Um, and then we've we've tried to be really proactive from a cost of labor standpoint. And we've, we've, we started a 401k match this year, which uh, was a pretty big investment. Um, and then we continued to give, you know, raises at a rate that we thought would, would, would be necessary to retain good people. So our cost of, you know, our payroll costs are up about 25% this year. So we cannot raise beer prices uh, fast enough to keep up with all of that. So our beer, we've raised beer prices about 6% this year. And we kind of do that in lockstep with the big brewers. And they've got a lot more advantages. They're way more vertically integrated than we are, way more efficient than we are. Um, so they're not in any rush to raise prices. Um, so we're uh, we're just going to eat it this year. It's, it's going to be a, you know, we, I think we'll, from a, the manufacturing side of the business, we, we won't make much profit at all this year. Uh, thankfully, we're big enough to be able to absorb that. And we have, we've got, you know, the cash flow and the reserves to do that. But uh, we're just kind of hoping this is an anomaly and that things will level out and beer prices will, will, will grow over the next, you know, couple of years. Were your, were your sales up, down or flat in tw- so far in 22? Sales are going to be up a little bit. We opened some new markets in New Orleans. Uh, sales are up about 10%. But in, in smaller markets like rural Louisiana, sales are down overall about 10 to 15%. And beer sales in general in those markets are down. Um, so it's got the distributors pretty concerned as well. Uh, just 
dynamics that they haven't faced in a, in a really long time. What's the thinking? Why, why, why? I don't know that there's any clear, clear thoughts yet. Um, domestic beer is really kind of driving the, the volume loss. Um, import Mexican imports are up uh, pretty significantly. So Modelo is having kind of a banner run right now. Um, but uh, there's no clear answers. I think the distributors aren't, they certainly aren't giving us any answers. So uh, it's just a challenge we're all collectively dealing with. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, yeah, here's hoping that this is the anomaly and that uh, 23 is just sales go up and then your, um, and then your costs go down. Uh, I wanted to ask about just a few more questions, gentlemen, but I'm curious about what the industry knows about the way consumers choose brews. You know, I'm sure there's tons of research about what makes someone, you know, on their way to a cookout, grab a 12 pack of Paradise Park or Houdat versus all the other options. Uh, how do brands work to make that connection? What's the science or what's the magic behind that? Well, I can speak to it from uh, from an identity perspective. I think the the craft beer industry has always been sort of on the forefront of being, you know, innovative for an industry that tied itself early on to sort of tradition and craft and things like that. The industry really developed sort of an innovative sort of playfulness in order to create this an emotional connection with consumers. And that's, you know, through the different beer styles, um, you know, just crazy combinations of things. That's the names. I mean, I've done some work on sort of um, actual beer names and how that resonates with, with consumers uh, as well. You know, there's a lot of breweries that really focus a huge amount of attention on sort of the artwork and those types of things. Um, so, you know, I think, the craft beer industry has always sort of pushed the envelope with um, with sort of being creative and playful uh, in an industry. And, you know, I don't know, you know, how intentional that is or strategic that is um, from every single craft brewery. Some just like to do it, like to have fun with it. Um, you know, Jake, again, Jake could probably speak to that to the degree to which they think strategically about those types of things, as opposed to just having fun and being playful and hoping that consumers, it resonates with consumers. Yeah, I wish we had a clear cut answer, but I think that, um, you know, our strategy has been, you know, certainly that emotional connection. And I think both from a branding standpoint and from a beer and flavor standpoint, uh, we do, you know, our number three best selling beer is a lime cucumber goza. It's a salty, sour beer with lime and cucumber. So it's not mainstream whatsoever, but um, I think it was a unique flavor combination in the right climate at the right time that that got some, you know, some some stability kind of out there in the market and continues to pull through really well for us. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you got Paradise Park that, you know, is a, is a really good beer. Uh, but as Cameron said, like there, are, there are companies making that style of beer in way bigger quantities than we do. And so more importantly than the beer in that case, I think is, is that emotional connection that people have to it. And um, again, just kind of timing has played a big role in it when it came out. Pricing has played a big role in it because we intentionally keep it as like a budget friendly beer. Um, and then, you know, the branding, just kind of the the playfulness of the branding and how fun it is and, um, you know, what we do with with that in terms of how we tell that story. I think all of that combines to be a, a, a winning combination in that case. You know, it's interesting. Um, we talk about the emotional connection. I, I, I recently did a study on uh, emotionality and beer names and um these are from data from 2000 to 2012, so it, it may have changed again because of the consumer changes, but we found that um, uh, beers with uh, positively charged or positively valence names actually had lower appeal and, and negative emotion in the beer names had higher appeal. And 
our, sort of our explanation for that is is was that you know the the crappy industry has always been sort of countercultural, right? So so this positive it, showing this positive emotion was sort of um, counterintuitively like it, it actually turned people off. Now again, that 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 may change. That may have changed now that that uh, craft beer consumers have become more diverse over the last ten years. But um, you know, there it, it's just it's interesting to see how this industry, you know, how it how it a lot of times turns you know, typical branding on its head and, 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 and uses sort of creative ways to get at consumers. Do you mean that like Grim Reaper beer is more appealing than Happy Sunshine beer? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, again, and th this is, these are population level effects where we're looking at like average beer scores over, um, yeah, uh, you know, over all of these, all of these breweries. So it's not as simple as to say, if I create a beer with a, a negative name, then it's going to become a huge hit in the industry. Right, right? Right, There's right. all of these other confounding factors going on. But right. if you look on average, I think, I think this sort of, whether it be playfulness or counterculturalness or just sort of challenging the norms resonates uh, with, with uh, craft beer consumers a lot. Makes sense. Now I've got a question again about that, you know, the, the footprint and expanding into new, new regions. I was surprised to hear you say that New Orleans ha is not keeping up with the growth of uh, breweries uh, uh, in the rest of the country. But setting that aside, you know, as someone like Urban South is expanding new zip codes, new states, um, what happens when you're rubbing up against, you know, another another region's Urban South? You know, how, do, how does that work? Is like, is, these, is there turf wars? Well, well, I'm going to start by saying there's a there's a pretty clear cut reason why Louisiana is behind and, and our regulatory system is you know, way worse than any other states, you know, as, as I got to know more about the laws in other states, I pretty quickly realized, I think, I think without hyperbole, I could say we've got the worst laws in the country for breweries. Um, and so that's really, that's led a lot of our investment decisions as well. We now, with a recent acquisition in Pensacola and our, the brewery that we have in Houston, we've now invested more money outside of Louisiana than we have in Louisiana. Um, and that's a, a really unfortunate and sad thing for me to admit to. Uh, but it's 100% due to the laws here. We can do things in Florida and Texas that are you know, uh, will lead to much quicker success than we can in, in New Orleans. What are the big um, three things that need to get fixed? So whoever's one of the get them fixed. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest is the ability to transfer beer between facilities and sell that beer. And Louisiana made a, a, a bad change to that last year um, that opened it up, but created uh, some pretty dumb, um, you know, nuances to it that, that still don't make it as good as Florida. So I can transfer beer that I make in New Orleans directly to my brewery in Florida and sell that beer uh, to consumers there. And as you can imagine, in manufacturing, these economies of scale are a huge part of, of growing and, and becoming more profitable. Um, so in terms of new markets, I mean, we, we, we actually pick markets, you know, with that in mind. So we look at markets that um, maybe aren't as fully fleshed out as others. Um, so in, in terms of going into Pensacola and the Florida Panhandle, not only did we meet another great you know business owner that was looking to exit uh, with a great brand, but we also looked at the, the market through distribution and realized there's really only two dominant craft players in that Panhandle. And we felt like with our brand and, and the beer that we know we can make and our team, we could come in and become a dominant player uh, relatively quickly. Uh, we also look at distribution partners and make sure that there's a distributor there that uh, we think could really service the brand and get it into all the right places. And so um, that's you know some big parts of the decision in terms of where to go 
in, in new markets is looking at the saturation and, and whether it's a, a super saturated market. I'm not going to go open a brewery in San Diego. Uh, that is not on the radar. That's not, you know, it, you know, first and foremost, because there's over 100 breweries in that one county. Uh, probably today there's 150. Um, and we just know that, like, we don't want to fight that battle. But the panhandle makes perfect sense. So is is that the plan that, you know, let's say three years from now, I'm down there at Grayton Beach or something. And it's just it's just Paradise Park everywhere like you would see it here, right? Yeah. So Paradise Park, but also Perfect Plain. So Perfect Plain is the the brewery that we brought we bought in pensacola and we're going to build that brand out through distribution and so we really want you know folks in the panhandle to be able to buy another another local beer um and we really when we made that decision you know the the assumption there is that if we do a local brand really well like urban south will never be able to outcompete it and so uh we really wanted to be able to push both brands in that market with the assumption that the local brand is going to long term do even better than urban south understood i'm about to run out of time so i'm going to ask y'all both one quick question just as my, my standard wrap-up you guys are new orleanians you see all the challenges we have and you you know all the good things about our city as you look at the economy right now from your vantage point whether it's at tulane or urban south what makes you worried about the next year and worried about our future and what makes you feel optimistic well uh, so i'll start uh, I think the optimism lies in um, how passionate people from New Orleans are about embracing things uh, from their from their local community, right? If you're if you're any type of organization, but a craft brewery especially, if you're able to to create a compelling link to your community, you're always going to be. Uh, I, I think customers in this area are always going to be loyal to you and see you through sort of tough times, right? And I and I think that that um, our community has uh, has a real resiliency in that way. Um, now, I don't know how bad it could get in terms of the economy and inflation and costs and everything like that. There, there is a breaking point, no matter how loyal people are. So I think that's the uncertainty. Um, uh, that's the uncertainty over time. But the I, I think the, the, the positive is that, that sort of this community and this region um, has dealt with adversity before and come come out stronger. Nice. Jacob Landry, I got less than a minute. What's your thought? Yeah, I'd say on the resiliency note, I mean, this this community deals with things day to day that most cities do not, and then they still stick with it and, and keep keep going. Uh, so that's what we plan to do. I mean, I remind myself frequently that, you know, as a as a company, we're only six and a half years old. And so we've already been through a pandemic and now into recessions <laughs> and so or or inflation. Um, so I try to keep I try to keep the long view, even though we're so young that, you know, as long as we kind of keep our head down and keep doing the fundamentals well, you know, this isn't doom and gloom. We'll get through it and there'll be a brighter, brighter point somewhere around the corner. Well, here's hoping. And you can always enjoy Paradise Park as you're going through whatever we're going through. Well, Tulane Business Professor uh, Jay Cameron Verhall and Urban South, Jacob Landry. Thank you guys so much for talking about the business of beer. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.